0: Chapter 1 of The Romance of Modern Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Krista Zaleski. The Romance of Modern Astronomy by Hector MacPherson. Chapter 1. Our Place in the Universe. Science is the Study of Nature. By means of science, we are enabled to understand the everyday things of life, the flowers, the hills, the stars, and the place which they occupy in nature. Thus, botany is the study of flowers and trees. Geology is the study of the hills and rocks, while astronomy raises our thoughts to the star-spangled heavens. Of all the sciences, and they are many and varied, astronomy is the most interesting and the most wonderful. Not only is it full of interest, but it is in many ways the most educative study which the human mind can pursue, for it enables us to understand the position which our world occupies in the universe. By astronomy, men were enabled to answer the question, what is the Earth? In childhood we learn that the Earth is round like an orange or a ball. But when we stand out in the open and look around us, the Earth seems more like a vast, illimitable plane than a round globe. Long ago, in the childhood of the race, men believed that our world would be a vast, illimitable plane, but reflective minds were not satisfied with this theory. They soon perceived that the earth was not a plane. The sun, it was observed, rose in the east every morning and set in the west every evening, and it was obvious that it could not rise and set through the solid ground. The question presented itself to those early Chaldean and Greek students of nature, Where did the sun go every night? Did it pass under the earth? Such an idea was unthinkable to those early scientists. Was not the earth solid and immovable, firmly fixed at the bottom of creation? Accordingly, some very remarkable theories were devised to explain how the sun rose in the east in the morning, after having disappeared in the west the previous evening. Some of the ancients believed that the sun fell into the sea at night, and was quenched, and that the gods were busy all night making a new sun to start the next morning in the east. But, as Sir Robert Ball remarks, this was thought to be such a waste of good suns, that a more economic theory was afterwards proposed. This was that as the sun was falling into the ocean in the west, it was caught by the god Vulcan, who was wading in his boat to prevent it falling into the sea. Having placed the orb of day in his boat, Vulcan rowed round by the north, where a great ocean was supposed to exist. Arriving in the east, he pitched the sun into the sky with tremendous force to commence another day's journey. Theories such as these had influence for many years over the minds of men. Gradually, however, it became apparent that such ideas were absurd and that the sun must really go below the earth. And here, students of nature asked, what is the earth and what supports it? Many grotesque theories were put forward One speculator thought that the earth was held up by great pillars, which allowed the sun to pass between them. Another believed our world to be supported by enormous mythical animals. Some support, in the minds of ancients, was absolutely necessary. The author of the book of Job, however, had grasped the truth. For writing of the power of the Creator, he says, He hangeth the earth upon nothing. This is literally true. The earth hangs upon nothing. Gradually, the truth dawned that the earth was a globe, not a vast plane, a view which was held by the great Greek philosopher Aristotle, and became generally accepted. Aristotle thought that the earth, a globe suspended in space, was the center of the universe, round which the sun, moon, and stars revolved. By this time, considerable progress had been made in the study of astronomy. The study of the stars had become a science of measurement, and it was soon apparent that the celestial bodies had not one motion round the Earth only, but a number of motions. For instance, it was known that the sun, moon, and stars revolved round the Earth every 24 hours. But it soon became apparent, as observation progressed, that the moon had another motion round the Earth once in a month, and that the sun seemed to have also another motion revolving round the Earth once in a year. Then, attentive observation of the heavens disclosed the existence of another class of objects. The ordinary stars, fixed stars as they came to be called, revolved once in 24 hours, but they did not change their positions relative to each other. The star groups or constellations remained unchanged. The early astronomers noted that there were five bright star-like objects, which instead of remaining fixed in the sky, moved in an irregular manner round the heavens. Always keeping close to the path traversed by the sun on its annual journey. These the early observers named planets, which is Greek for wanderers. It was soon recognized that there were five of these objects, each different from the other. There was Venus, the brightest of the wanderers, shining with a soft, gentle, steady light, named by the ancient Greeks after their goddess of love. They noticed that Venus never moved far from the sun that it was never to be seen shining on a really dark sky. It was also observed that Venus was sometimes visible as an evening star after sunset, and sometimes as a morning star before sunrise. Indeed, it was long thought that the morning star and the evening star were separate bodies, but very early in astronomical history it was recognized that they were one and the same. The ancients recognized another bright object also visible as an evening and morning star, and keeping much closer to the sun than Venus. They called the planet Mercury, the messenger of the gods. But they also called it the sparkling one, from its rapidly twinkling light. Another bright object, much brighter than Mercury, was also recognized, a great golden star, which, instead of keeping close to the sun, swept majestically round the entire heavens. This they named Jupiter after their chief deity. Then they recognized a planet of reddish hue, which at times waxed almost as bright as Jupiter, and then rapidly waned. From its fiery color, they named this object Mars, after the god of war. Yet another planet, fainter than the rest, slow-moving, of a dull yellowish light creeping round the entire heavens once in about thirty years, was named Saturn, after the god of time. Each of these planets had its own peculiarities of motion, and partook also in the revolution of the entire heavens once in 24 hours. The problem before the ancient astronomers was then how to account for the motions of the sun, moon, planets, and stars. Many and varied were the explanations put forward. Eudoxus, a Greek thinker who died about 355 BC, was the author of an ingenious attempt to explain these motions by an elaborate theory known as that of the spheres. The Earth, he believed, was a globe firmly fixed at the centre of the universe. Each planet was fixed to a number of different spheres by the manipulation of which the elaborate motions resulted. Then, at the extreme limit of the universe was a sphere to which all the stars proper were fixed. Another theory was that of the astronomer Hipparchus, which was developed to its greatest extent by his successor Ptolemy of Alexandria in Egypt. Like Eudoxus, Ptolemy believed that the Earth was firmly fixed as the center of creation. But he did not accept the theory of spheres. He believed that the Sun, Moon, planets, and stars revolved round the Earth in the following order. The Moon, Mercury, Venus, the Sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and the stars proper, which, as in the theory of Eudoxus, were supposed to be attached to the inside of a large sphere. But Ptolemy was not ignorant of the irregularities in the motions of the planets, of the fact that the planets did not move with uniform velocities. He was one of the most thoughtful of the ancient astronomers, and he knew that if a planet moved around the Earth in a uniform circular orbit, its velocity and direction would not change. Accordingly, he devised a most complicated and ingenious theory that the planets moved in circles and that the centers of these circles revolved round the earth in larger circles. The smaller circles were called epicycles. As new irregularities came to be discovered, new epicycles had to be invented, until at last the theory became so difficult and cumbersome that few could understand it. Indeed, it is recorded of a certain king of Spain that when his tutor was explaining to him the theory then generally accepted, he exclaimed in disgust that if he had been consulted at the creation, he could have given some useful hints for simplifying the system of the universe. In spite of the intricacies and improbabilities of Ptolemy's theory, it was accepted for 1400 years. It is true that some keen minds among the Greeks had come to the conclusion that there was a much simpler conception of the universe, but they had not the courage to declare for a new theory, and it was left for Nicholas Copernicus, a Polish clergyman, to propound the system which bears his name. Copernicus, after giving deep attention to the subject, came to the conclusion that it was much easier to believe that the Earth turned on its own axis, and so caused the apparent motion of the Sun, Moon, planets, and stars, than to think that these objects all happened by some coincidence to go round our planet in exactly the same time. Copernicus also came to the conclusion that instead of the Sun moving round the Earth once a year, and the planets also revolving round our world in complicated orbits. It was more reasonable to believe that the Earth and the other planets revolved round the Sun. This was the theory which Copernicus put forward. It had the merit of simplicity, but notwithstanding this fact it was disbelieved, and its supporters were threatened with persecution. Nevertheless, men of science were driven to accept it because they saw how greatly its acceptance simplified the complicated motions of the planets. Tycho Brahe, the famous Danish astronomer, abandoned the idea that the planets revolved round our Earth. Choosing to believe that they revolved round the sun, which moved round our planet. The next step was to declare boldly that the theory of the earth's motion explained more satisfactorily the motions of the celestial bodies. This step was taken by Bruno, Galileo, and Kepler, but it was taken at a great risk and at a great sacrifice. Bruno was burned alive for holding this theory among others which the Roman Catholic Church had pronounced to be impious. Galileo had to suffer much persecution for his championship of the Copernican theory. Its opponents disliked Galileo most of all because he brought forward unanswerable arguments in favor of the new system. Kepler, the least persecuted of the three, was destined still further to improve the theory by his famous three laws. He showed that the Earth and the other planets, instead of revolving round the Sun in circular paths, moved in ellipses he was enabled to explain many of the irregularities which Copernicus had to leave unsolved. Thus, the labors of Copernicus, Galileo, and Kepler showed us beyond a doubt our true position in the universe, that the Earth is merely a planet in constant revolution round the Sun, a member of the Sun's system, and a companion planet of Mercury and Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. It was Sir Isaac Newton who demonstrated beyond doubt the truth of the system of Copernicus, Newton furnished mankind with a key to unlock the mysteries of the solar system. He explained why the Earth and the other planets were constantly moving round the Sun, and why they moved in elliptical orbits. It was in the year 1666, when Newton was a young man in his ancestral home near Grantham in England, that his mind first lit on the grand idea of the law of gravitation, that every particle of matter in the universe attracts every other particle. The story goes that one day when Newton was sitting in his garden, he saw an apple fall to the ground. Now he knew why the apple fell, because it was heavy. In other words, because it was drawn to the earth by the power of gravitation. And he was led to ask if the same force did not keep the moon in its monthly orbit round the earth, and prevent it flying off into space, and also keep the earth and the other planets in their paths round the sun. After 20 years' hard mathematical work, he was able to prove that the force which drew the apple to the ground held the moon in its orbit, and that the moon moved round the earth, and the earth and the other planets round the sun, simply by virtue of the inherent power of gravity in these various bodies. For instance, the earth attracts the moon, and the moon attracts the earth. But the earth is so much larger than the moon that our satellite is compelled to revolve round our world. Similarly, the Sun attracts the Earth, and the Earth attracts the Sun. But owing to the immense superiority of the Sun in size, the Earth, though having a natural tendency to move in a straight line, is compelled to move round the larger body. Thus, Copernicus showed us our Earth's position in the solar system, and Newton showed us why we occupy that position. The result of the change in astronomical thought was that the Earth's inhabitants could no longer consider themselves the chief objects of creation. Our world was brought down from the position of ruler and center of the universe to the humble place of a small planet revolving round the sun. As we shall find in the following chapters, this was but the first step in the change of opinion, for the researches of Sir William Herschel and later astronomers have proved that our planet is a mere grain of sand in the ocean of infinity. Astronomy enables us to understand the fact, though we but imperfectly realize it, that our Earth, which seems to us a great, flat, immovable plane, is in reality a globe about 8,000 miles in diameter, turning on its own axis in 24 hours, and dashing onward in its orbit round the Sun at the rate of 18 miles a second. We do not feel the motion of our planet, because we are carried along with it, and the atmosphere is also a component part of our globe. It is difficult to grasp the fact that our planet is moving onwards with so great a velocity that each second of time finds us 18 miles onward in our journey. Thus we see that astronomy, alone of the sciences, answers the question, what is our earth and what is its position in nature? End of chapter 1